0: Praise the Lord. We praise God for the gift to worship. Amen. Amen. Gift, the gift to sing to such a great king. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for allowing those who know you to be safe in your arms. For truly, you are our shepherd, and we shall not want. You make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You and only you can restore our souls. So, Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would restore our souls, replenish our souls with your word, renew our hearts, renew our minds, renew our spirits in order that we, Father God, would be, Father God, what you want us to be. And Father, for the one today who does not know you, for the one today who cannot say that you truly are their shepherd, we pray today, Father God, that you would become their shepherd. We pray today, Father God, that you would make them to lie down and that you would lead them for your sake and glory. Humble us at this moment. Help us to submit to your word. Help us to look to your word, Father God, not that our ears would be tickled, but that our hearts would burn as a result of seeing a holy and a majestic God. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you could stand to your feet and grab your Bibles and turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6, and again to those who are visiting with us today or visiting for the first time, we greet you with a warm, forced welcome, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start reading at the 14th verse, and we're going to read up until verse 29. This is a, a wonderful chapter. The first 29 verses is is pretty much getting at the point that if if you are a disciple of Jesus if you've been called to follow him you've been called to speak about him and those who have been called to speak about him they can't be thin-skinned for you will be rejected by men. mark chapter 6 starting at the 14th verse The precious, convicting, comforting, majestic, wonderful, authentic, sufficient word of God reads. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said. He is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading man of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Today we want to tag this text guiding light, guiding light. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. You know, before hit television shows like Desperate Housewives and reality television, there was a such thing uh, called soap operas. I remember growing up, man, soap operas were, were huge. I couldn't go, go too long and, and walk throughout my house without hearing my mother talk to one of my aunties or, or women, grown women, just talking about them. They'll talk about General Hospital and. Yeah, y'all know about that, don't you? (laughs) Soaps ran it. Soaps were what was most popular. Things like Days of Our Lives. And for the younger generation, you hear me say that and you're like, soap operas? What is a soap opera? A soap opera is a radio television series that depicts the lives of, of many characters. And these characters' lives are kind of merged together. They kind of all come together. And soap operas have very romantic and overdramatic themes. And by the way, soap operas were not called soap operas because after watching them, you just felt clean and pure. In fact, I would argue that after watching a soap opera, you kind of felt like you needed to go and take a bath. Soap operas received their name because soap manufacturing companies ended up sponsoring the programs. What made soap so intriguing and so popular was the way in which they were written they were written as an open-ended narrative that successfully prolonged a a running stories conflict and the conflict that most characters experience seemed to be very overdramatic. Almost every week, the drama in a story became more twisted, more deranged, making it all the more juicy and all the more addicting. Soaps fed on things such as adultery and murder and lies and sibling rivalries and, and sex and, and and all these things. Never forget when... My, when Amber and I were courting and we just were getting to know each other, I'll never forget one day we were talking about communication in relationships. And and she said that one thing that kept soap operas going was, was the character's lack of commitment to communicating the truth in a timely fashion. Most characters' lives were so bent out of shape and so dark because no one was confronting each other with the truth. In fact, they constantly found themselves in deep-seated water because after failing to tell the truth, they had to cover up the lies. Today, God is going to challenge us to not be a part of the the world's soap opera. For some of us, we are actively a part of the world's soap opera because of the drama-filled lives that we live. But for others of us, we are passively a part of the soap opera because we neglect to stand firm and speak the truth in love to people. You hear that? So today's big idea is this believer. Surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. Surrender to the risky call of, of speaking the truth in love. In today's text, we see a family that made some soap opera episodes look like TBN. In fact, one of today's stories' main character is Herod. And Herod reveals, uh, or history reveals, I should say, that this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the seventh son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great is... Chronicled, his life is chronicled, a portion of his life in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, we see it was Herod the Great that was ordering the death of children in Bethlehem. It is said of Herod Antipas' father that Herod the Great was a ruthless stranger to all humanity. He was dirty. He was mean. He was messed up. He had some serious issues. Herod the Great ended up dying about four or five years after the birth of Jesus. And since he was over this, this land, the Tetrarch over this land, he ended up splitting his kingdom with three, uh, amongst three of his sons, Philip, Antipas, and Archelius. All of Herod the Great's son had broken lives just like their father. All of the Herod the Great's sons lived in a in a soap opera type of life, and the reason they they lived broken lives was because they were a part of a broken kingdom. The days of their lives were filled with soap opera things. Mark chapter one, we learned that that Jesus has come. He has stepped into the world. He has stepped into the soap opera, and he has stepped in to declare good news. He has stepped in to preach about a new kingdom, a new king, and a God that reigns. He came preaching the the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is life with God under God's rule and under God's care. The kingdom that Herod and and the kingdom that the world is a part of is a kingdom of trifleness. While the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Herod and his family desperately needed a guiding light. Herod and his family desperately needed someone to speak the truth to them in love. They they desperately needed to become citizens of God's kingdom so that their soap opera would end in order that they could live the life that God desired for his creation to live. See, the Bible teaches that life was meant to be lived not for our own advantage, not for our own benefit, but for the advantage and the benefit of God, for the advantage and the benefit of the one who created us. And the only way that Herod and his family will become citizens of the kingdom of God is if they take their heart's gaze off of their small kingdom and put their heart's gaze on Jesus and his big kingdom. God gave them the opportunity to do this when he sent John the Baptist to preach to them. However, in today's text, we'll, we'll see that Herod and his family they rejected John. They imprisoned John. And eventually they even murdered John. Doesn't it sound like a soap opera? This text is going to be broken up into to three parts. As we look at the text, verses 14 through 16, we're going to break that up or we're going to label that Herod's consciousness, Herod's conscious or or Herod's paranoia, Herod's paranoia. And then we're going to look at verses 17 through 20 and we're going to break that up and we're going to label that as John's preaching, John's preaching. Verses 21 through 29 is going to be labeled John's gruesome murder. So those of you who are following John's gruesome murder. Now, today, we are not going to deal with verses 14 through 20. We're going to come back next week and we're going to expand on that story. Today, we're going to walk through this story and we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. So let's look at Herod's conscience, verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 reads, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I want you to, to look at your text and, and notice here in verse 14 it says, When King Herod heard of it, what is the it? Well, in the previous verses, we. we we see that Jesus' name has been spreading. His fame is going all throughout this region. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is because Jesus' ministry was just all that. Jesus came preaching with authority and passion and clarity. In fact, Jesus' ministry was unlike anybody else's ministry. Everybody else's ministry... Talks about God. Jesus was God doing the ministry of God. He was doing his own ministry. So so Jesus fame was spreading. But the second reason that Jesus fame was spreading was because Jesus had just delegated his authority or his power to his disciples. We read in this in this section verses. I'm sorry, in verses seven through 13, that Jesus had brought his 12 disciples together and he delegated his authority or he delegated his power to them. He sent them out two by two. And he said, I don't want you all to take anything with you. I don't want you to take an extra pair of clothes. I don't want you to take a script. I don't want you to take a sword. Why? Because I'm teaching you to trust me. And I want you to go out and I want you to help people. I want you to minister to people. But, you know, a lot of times when we read that section, we our attention is drawn to the works that they did. It's drawn to the fact that they cast out demons. It's drawn to the fact that they did miraculous things. But the main point of that passage is to show that the main thing that God called them to do was to preach, to teach. Teach to extend the gospel. The Bible says that when they went, they didn't just go to do miracles, they went to confront people with their soap opera filled lives and to call people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So Herod has heard of Jesus' ministry, not mainly because of the miracles that were done, but he probably heard of Jesus' kingdom because of the radical message that was being preached, a message of repentance, a message that confronted people. Jesus's disciples were not afraid to surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. Now, as we look at this passage, it's important that we also see this. It's important that we see that John the Baptist is doing exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing. Jesus' disciples went throughout the land preaching good news because Jesus looked at them and said, Go! Go two by two and spread this message. But John the Baptist, his ministry was effective because he did the same exact thing. Now, John was not in the 12, but John received a call from God to go and to preach. John understood that his call from God was to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. John understood that God had anointed him. He had chosen him. He had saved him. He had set him apart. Not so that John could live a a comfortable life, but so that John can speak the oracles of God. And I come to tell you all today, like John, we have been called to to, by God to preach this message. We have been called by God to speak the truth in love to people. We have been called by God to stand up courageously with conviction and to lift the word of God up to the conscience of man. So everyone is talking about Jesus from the local Starbucks to the University of Louisville. They were talking about Jesus because Jesus' disciples were fearless and Jesus' disciples were faithful. So people started saying, who is Jesus? And that's what we see in verse number 15. Some were simply saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. They were saying that John the Baptist was raised from the dead. They understood that this preacher had just been killed. He had just been murdered. Others were saying that his uh, uh, that he was Elijah. They said that he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And why were they saying that he was like one of the prophets of old? Why weren't they saying that he was like one of the synagogue leaders or like someone else? Well, what they were saying was that Jesus was not coming and preaching a necessarily feel good message. The gospel is good news, but you don't have good news without bad news. Uh, Jesus wasn't just telling people that you can have your best life now. No, Jesus came preaching a holistic gospel, a gospel that exposed the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. But a gospel that also exposed the grace of God, just like the prophets of old. So everyone is talking and everyone is wondering, well, well, who is Jesus? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet like one of those of old? But look at what verse 16 says. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Do you see what Herod concluded? Herod concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist. His conscience was eating at him. His conscience was knowing at him because he killed Jesus. John the Baptist. Herod was in torment over his sin. He was tweaking. He was tripping. Isn't that kind of crazy? Doesn't that seem illogical? But I'm telling you, that is what sin does. In the words of Dr. Edward Fubaro, sin binds, blinds, and then grinds. When we sin, we feel paranoid. And we are easily annoyed. Sin causes sorrow, sadness, and separation. But this is good news to to those of us who have accepted Jesus. To those of us who have been called to proclaim the message of Christ. You say, how is this good news? The good news is, is that we see that God has given everyone a conscience. God has given everyone some sort of moral compass that tells them what is right and tells them what is wrong. When we sin, we feel guilty. We feel dirty. We feel like we have done something wrong. And, and you, a lot of you know, when you sin in private, sometimes it feels like everybody knows about it. In fact, I recently read an article uh, from an online news publication called The Week, and the article reported on some surveys that were done in America. And basically the surveys revealed that the average American is just walking around swallowed by guilt. The average American is just swallowed by guilt, living in guilt. Listen, God has given us a message, and it is a message of good news. If you're a Christian here today, we have received a a message that speaks directly to the guilt of people. We have received a message that says, you know what? You are guilty. You deserve to be guilty because you are a sinner. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says. We all have missed the very standard of God. Therefore, we feel guilty. We feel nasty. We feel dirty. But the Bible teaches us that that's. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. The Bible teaches us that God sent his son into the world in order to die the death that we deserve. In order to to take the judgment that we deserve. Jesus came into the earth and lived a life that you could never live, that, that I could never live. He died upon a cross so that your past, present and future sins could be wiped away by a gracious God so that you would not have to live a life of guilt, a life of condemnation. And Even as I speak this morning, someone in here is waddled by guilt. As you think about what you did last night or two weeks ago, and I come to tell you this morning to run to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can cleanse you and forgive you. Jesus is the one who can give you a new conscience, a a conscience that says, I am not condemned by Satan when I fall. Because Jesus took the excruciating torment that I deserve when he went on Calvary's cross and he buried it in a grave and rose from it. This is the message that God has given us. And we must lift this message up to the consciousness of people. You've got some lost loved ones who are living in guilt. You must, we must go to them. We must surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love to them. And see the results. John the Baptist was dead. But God is still working Herod. You see that? John the Baptist is gone. Herod is still paranoid. The message of John the Baptist is still preaching to him. The voice of John the Baptist is still reminding him of his sin. Every single person's conscience at any given time is either offending them or defending them. It's either accusing them or it's making them defensive. So that lost loved one, that, that family member, that coworker. That person at the Starbucks that you always visit who you know don't know Jesus. I just want to encourage you to keep speaking the truth and love to him. Because God can do something with that message on their conscience that you never, never thought that he would be able to do. J.C. Rouse says that we must be amazed at the power of truth over the conscience. And I agree completely. So like John, we we must surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. Let's look at verse 17. In verse 17, we learn that John was specifically put in prison on behalf of Herod's unlawfully wedded wife. He was thrown in prison on behalf of Herod's unlawfully wedded wife. According to the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, uh, one trip while visiting his brother Philip's territory... Herod wooed his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, away from him. They both ended up divorcing their spouse, and it ended up being a huge, huge issue. The whole region knew about it. It was on TMZ, and it was on the tabloids and everything. It was a well-documented scandal. And John the Baptist knew about it, but he refused to, to be a part of the soap opera, so he decided to speak up. In verse 18, it says that John the Baptist proclaimed to Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's life, wife. And the Mosaic law, it states, of course, that that we should not commit adultery. That it is against God's law to sleep with another person's spouse or to take another person's spouse. But in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16, it gets even more specific. It says something that we think that everybody would know. It says that a brother should not take a brother's wife. (laughs) A brother shouldn't be so scandalous to sleep with his own brother's wife. So John confronted Herod on the sin and he called Herod to repent. John John did not confront Herod because he was mean and arrogant. Nor did he confront Herod because he was without flaw and without sin. No, John confronted Herod on Herod's sin because Herod was made in the image of God. And because Herod, like all of us, are under the standard of God or the law of God. John did not want Herod to miss heaven and go to hell. Revelation 21.8 promises that all adulterers, all liars... All those who are cowards will be thrown in a lake, burning with fire and brimstone. So like John, we must confront those who are entangled in their sin because we love them and because we want to see them grow to know Jesus. We want to see them grow to know Jesus. But, but let's be honest, calling people out on their sin, calling people out on their flaws is not easy. In fact, I would argue that no one here or very few people here look forward to confronting people. And if you do, you've got issues. (laughs) Not looking forward to confronting people is not evil. We shouldn't look forward. We shouldn't be eager and excited about calling somebody out. We should be broken over people's sins. We should be genuinely hurt that this person is entangled in sin. But our, our love for them and our fear of the coming judgment should motivate us past our fear of confronting them. We should know that this person, if they stay entangled, if they stay living like this, that they are going to stand before a holy and an awesome God. And that should drive us away from being scared. To saying this is a duty, this is what I must do because I love God. As I look at Christendom in America and in our context in this church, I, I can conclude that we really don't speak the truth in love to people. We don't. We don't speak the truth in love to our fellow Christians. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have character flaws that we know are sinful, and we just, we just let them go. And if we're not willing to speak the truth and love to each other, how in the world are we going to be willing to speak the truth and love to people who don't know Jesus? The kingdom of God is, is drastically affected by our cowardice. It's, it's affected by our negligence. It's, it's affected by our lack of loving in this way. People aren't experiencing the very grace and love of God because we are letting their soap opera type lifestyles continue. And sometimes we 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 get off the hook or we try to get off the hook and we think that, that pointing out sins and, and someone else's life is the pastor's job. Pastor, it's your job to call sister so-and-so on what she's doing. I know she's messy, but you know she's messy too. It's your job. But that can't be further from the truth. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said that it is the job of every follower of Jesus to make more followers of Jesus. It is the responsibility and the job of every believer to grow to the point of teaching people to observe all that Jesus commanded. So what hinders us from surrendering to the risky call of speaking the truth in love? What hinders us from standing up like John the Baptist and saying, you are in sin. This is against a holy God. Well, I think that there's two things that, as a church, that we could really deal with. And I could say I believe that hinders us from speaking the truth in love. But today we're just going to deal with one of them. We're going to come back next week and we're going to hammer in the second point. Today we're just going to deal with one issue, one thing that that you and I struggle with and that you probably are using as an excuse of why you can't go to that person that you know who is walking in sin and tell them what God requires. And the first thing is this, the fear of, of being judgmental, the fear of being or seeming judgmental. Many well-meaning Christians feel wrong and guilty for calling someone else out on their sin. And they often quote, we often quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and we look to it for justification. Matthew 7, verse 1 says, judge not that you be not judged. We, We use this as justification. The Bible tells me not to judge someone, so then I shouldn't judge them. We go into what I call Tupac mode. Tupac Shakur, when he was living, he was always walking around talking about only only God can judge me now. We walk around and saying, yeah, uh, uh, only God can judge me now. Only God can judge them. So I don't have a right to confront them or speak the truth to them. I hear people say this all the time. But like Lecrae said, he says, if only God can judge you, then how do you plan to beat the case? The Bible does not teach us that only God can judge us. The Bible teaches us that it is our responsibility as believers to help people who are entangled in sin. And if you read Matthew chapter 7 in context and continue to read what Jesus says, you know that that's not true. You know that God is not the only person who can judge you. Jesus says, how can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see what's happening here. Jesus is not saying that we cannot confront people on their sin, but rather that we must examine our own lives and make sure that we are not committing a similar or a worse offense. You catch that? He says before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. He didn't say you cannot take the speck out of your brother's eye. He said before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, you must get the log out of your own eye. In other words, Jesus is saying that we have to examine our own lives and make sure that we are not like or worse off than our brother. We got to make sure that we don't have cherished holes in our holiness. We've got to make sure that there's not areas that we are holding on to and cherishing, saying, this is this is my sin. That's that's his sin. His sin is worse because I don't do that. He says, no, you you have to look inwardly. Galatians chapter six, verse one says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You hear that? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. That's exactly what what Paul is saying to the church of Galatia, just like 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 Jesus was saying in Matthew. He says that the one who should restore the person who has crossed the line, they must be spiritual. And by spiritual, Paul does not mean a super Christian. Because there is no such thing as a super Christian. The only super Christian was Christ himself. Rather, the term the one who is spiritual means the one who is seeking and fighting to walk and live in the spirit. Paul is saying that let the one who shows evidence that they are walking with the Lord restore the one who is entangled in sin. So what is evidence of walking with the Lord? How do I know if it is okay for me to confront someone who is living in sin? Walking in the spirit there must be connected back to Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. The fruits of the spirit. He says, you know, if you're, you're able to confront or call someone out in the sin, if you see evidence of God's spirit working in you, if you can look at your life and look at your heart and, and look at the way that you live and say that God is making me more patient, more loving, more gracious. It's evident people are speaking this into your life. But it also says that we should restore the person with gentleness, not with harshness. We don't seek to embarrass the person or hurt them, but we do everything that we can to let them know that we love them way too much to allow them to destroy their lives. And not only their lives, we speak the truth in love to them because we love them way too much to allow them to destroy the reputation of Christ's bride. But let's. Let's think about the good that comes out of helping someone who is entangled. James chapter four, verse 19 says these words. The one who returns the person who is wandering from the truth back to the truth, saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sin. The one who speaks the truth in love is a person who is saving that person from death. The reformer and theologian Martin Luther once said that one day we will not just be judged on what we said, but we also will be judged on what we did not say. Those who are spiritual, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. You have been given the ministry of restoration. And I'm calling you today, Christians, to surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. Now, there are some people who are hearing this right now, are you like, Whoo! I am off the hook. I know that I can't speak into someone's life because I know my life is a mess. I know that this message isn't for me because I know I got to get some stuff together. I know I'm living in sin. Well, the Lord requires something of you this morning as well. He requires that you not settle to live with the plank in your own eye. He requires that you pursue being spiritual. He requires that you don't hide behind the fact that I'm just a a carnal Christian. Or I'm still still growing, I'll be there one day. He, He says, no, if you are an entangled cultural Christian, you may not even belong to the Lord. A Christian is not a person who cherishes sin. A Christian is not a person who holds on to areas of their life and just says, well, this is my one area. God I just have to deal with it. First John chapter five, verse 18 says we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. One of the evidences of being a child of God is that we hate sin and we are growing to hate sin more. It's that we are bothered by the areas of our lives that do not match up to what God is calling us. It's not that we cherish it and gloat on it and say, oh, that's just me. That's just the way I am. That's messed up. If you just a liar or just always sarcastic or always hurting somebody's feelings or always going off the handle, that means you have an anger problem. That's a sin. We cannot accept habitual areas of flaws and sin in our lives. Pastor, you don't really know what you're talking about because I love the Lord. I know I've been holding on to this sin for, for 20 years, but I love the Lord. I know we're not married and we're living together, but I love the Lord. I know every now and then I curse out my husband, but I love the Lord. I love him. Let me, let me prove you how I love him. I love him because I gladly come to church on Sunday. And I gladly let people know I do. I love him because I, I gladly sing my gospel songs. Well, let me point you to verse 20 in this text. It says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. You see what just happened? John the Baptist was preaching to Herod. Herod showed up to hear him preach. He was perplexed, which means he was miserably guilty, but yet he was glad to be there. And that's how some of us are here today. We are miserably guilty Sunday after Sunday because we know that we are not going to change our lives when we leave this place. We are miserably guilty because we know for the last 20 years we've been doing the same routine, the same thing. We are miserably guilty because we know that on Saturday night we're going to hit up every club and get drunk as we can. We are miserably guilty because we have cherished sins, cherished things that God does not cherish. But yet we come to church and we sing gladly and we laugh and we say, preach me happy, preacher. Being glad to hear somebody preach and being glad to come to church does not make a person a Christian. Herod was glad to hear John preach, but Herod was not a Christian. He was miserably guilty, miserably perplexed, but yet he chose not to repent. Chose not to repent. What sin are you justifying? What sin is your one sin? What are you cherishing more than Christ? Is there an area in your life where you decided that this is my area? Is your life as a Christian right now, is this where you decided that you're going to stay? One day, my wife and I were walking into our home when the phone rang. And on the other side of the phone was a childhood friend of mine. So she called, and she sought to engage me in conversation. And I talked to her in the presence of my wife. Well, all of a sudden, she revealed to me in a, a very nonchalant, easygoing way that she was having a, a living in adultery. She revealed to me that she was having an affair with her ex-boyfriend. He's married. She's not. And she said in a very easy way, like, oh, yeah, by the way. But I could tell that her conscience was eating her and that the reason that she revealed this to me was because she was hoping that I would just give her a light tap, a little love tap and say everything's going to be all right. But I couldn't. I couldn't because the gospel of my savior wouldn't allow me to. I couldn't because God has called me to to surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. So I began to talk to her, and I began to point her to the scripture to remind her that adultery is never justifiable. To remind her that cheating with a married man is never okay. To remind her that God speaks to it in the Bible, and he speaks to a lot of to remind her that the Bible tells us, let no one put asunder. What God has put together. And her response was, was amazing. She, she responded by saying, man, man, now I'm held accountable. I reached out to her for a couple of weeks after and, and, and wasn't able to reach her. But I pray that the reason that I was not able to reach her was not because she cherished her lust over the Savior that loved her enough to die for. When I'm confronting someone with sin, I often ask myself, if this was me entangled in the sin, what would encourage me to drop the sin and to cherish Jesus? If this was me entangled in the sin, what would it take for me to drop the sin? That's the approach I took. By God's grace, I ministered to her as if that was me. I was stern and yet I was gentle as I could. And afterwards, she responded in a way. Like I said, that was unbelievable, but I did what I was called to do. I did what I was called to do. Today, there is no doubt in my mind, with an audience this big, that there is someone in here today living in adultery. There is no doubt in my mind, with an audience this big, that there is a Christian in here today who knows that another person is living in adultery. There are some of you who go to work and you have lunch with coworkers that you know have work spouses. God is calling you to surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love. I beg you, dear Christian, I beg you, dear Christian, to not become entangled with that sin. I beg you today to to repent, to cut the relationship off. I dare you, dear Christian, to speak up to that coworker, to speak up to that friend, to speak up To that lost person and let them know, you know, God created the institution of marriage. It was his first institution that he created. He blessed it. And you are going against God when you break it up. And I'm speaking to you, Christian, who are, you're just on that line. You're flirting with that person. It's it's harmless. It seems harmless. That's what you tell yourself. But I beg you. I beg you to repent, to turn, and to touch Jesus. I love the book of Proverbs. If you're looking for something to read tomorrow or this week, I I really encourage you to to read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom and knowledge. The book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 5 and 6 says, It is better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. He says, if, if, if you're someone's true friend, you will rebuke them in order to restore them. You will wound them in order to heal them. And I want you to notice something else here. Look at what John said in verse 18. It says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see that? John here is talking to Herod and he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He does not acknowledge Herodias as Herod's wife. He still acknowledges this Herodias as Philip's wife, which means that God does not honor homewrecking. Oh, y'all don't like me today, but I love you. 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 God does not honor the home record. You don't believe me? Go to Matthew chapter one, verse six. In Matthew chapter one, verse six, it says the same thing about David, and about how he took Uriah's wife. In the genealogy of Jesus, he doesn't. Need, God does not even give David credit for being with Bathsheba, and them having Solomon's son. He says David, who took Uriah's wife, had a son named Solomon. Some of us in here, we need to repent by the way we hooked up with our spouse. Want God to honor your marriage. Lord, bless my marriage. And you're married and you stole that person from another person. Well, pastor, she says she's about to get a divorce. Fool, you fell for it? We're laughing, but we serve a holy God, a God with standards, a God who will not let Satan flirt with or take his bride. So why would he let somebody else take someone else's bride and honor their lives? Serve a God that's gracious, a God that allowed his son, that gave his son for you in order that you can have true life, in order that you can be saved from this soap opera. A God who says, if you come to me, I will give you rest and rest and life more abundantly. And yet we just come to him on our terms. God is raising up some John the Baptist, some men and some women who aren't living to be liked, who are living because they are loved by the one who saved them. Lastly, let's look at one more thing. I want you to see sin's terrifying effect. Look at verse 19. Look at what it says about Herodias, Philip's wife. It says that she had a grudge against him And wanted to put him to death. All John is doing is preaching. Preaching about the God that he loves. And she hates what he's saying so much that she hates him enough that she wants him dead. She hates him so bad that she wants to murder him. That's sin's effect. Sin makes our hearts hard and callous. Sin makes us hate and dislike the very people that we should love and cherish. The people who are speaking the truth to us in order that we would have an a intimate relationship with God. If you're a believer here today and someone is speaking the truth and love to you and you are stiff-arming them like Walter Payton, and you dance around them like Barry Bonds, and you're talking negative about them because you just think they're so judgmental when you know their life is lining up and they are genuine, then you are no better than Herodias. And be careful. The more you hear the message of the gospel preached and the more you intentionally harden your heart and turn your ears off and and close your eyes, the the more likely you are going to to be come repubate and become callous. know what happened to Cain? God said, Cain, if you just come back with an appropriate offering, it's going to be all good between us. But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door. It's, It's waiting to overtake you like a lion. It's waiting to control you. It's waiting to entangle you. It's waiting to break you. It's waiting to blind you. It's waiting to strip you of your strength. It's waiting to prepare you for hell. It says, Cain, listen to me. Do not harden your heart. Hey, Cain, harden his heart. And what did he go and do? He went and murdered. Herodias, hardened our her heart. And what did she go and do? She went and murdered. Some of us, we have hardened our heart. And after we leave Sunday morning, what do we go and do? We go and we murder. If you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you to not let other people's habitual sin and flagrant sin go unspoken of. But I also want to encourage you not to let your own sin go unchecked. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says, the one who is seeking to restore the other, He says, you be careful unless you fall. Unless you fall. Some of us in here, we're okay, right? We're not committing adultery. We're not like Herod. That's not our sin. But I want to call you to repent from committing spiritual adultery. God has saved you. And he wants you to be his first love. But he's no longer your first love because you're putting everything and everyone over him. The game is more important than him. The mall is more important than him. You find yourself like Herod this morning. You come to church to be entertained. You come to church to be preached glad. Today, I want to call you to repent and to call you to see the God of Scripture, the God who saved you and who loved you and who did not save you in order that you could date him once a week. But a God who saved you in order that He could be married to you. He calls you His bride, a God who wants intimate fellowship with you. And He's not calling you to intimate fellowship with you because He thinks it's going to take something from you. He's calling you to intimate fellowship with Him because He knows it's going to make you better. Walking with the God of the universe, the one who flung the stars into existence, the one who controls the ocean. The one who created you with a very purpose, it does not take from you. It adds to you. Today, you're like Herod. If you don't know Jesus, I call you to know him and to treasure him. Don't follow him hoping that he will make you glad. Follow him because he's glory and he can make your life glorious. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you as a church, repenting, Father God, from our spiritual adultery. We come repenting, Lord, for not taking your word serious. All throughout your word, it tells us to go and to teach and to confront and to surrender to the risky call of speaking the truth in love, Father. And yet so many of us throughout our Christian lives, we don't. We have never done that. Some of us, Father God, we, we never tell people about what they have done unless they did something to us that hurt us. But we, we never go and tell them and say, hey, this is hurting God. We repent, Father God. Help us not to be cowards. Help us, Father God, to be courageous. Help us to be fearless. Help us to look at the coming judgment as not something that's going to happen a thousand years from now. But Lord, help us to see that you can come like a thief in the night, and that can be tomorrow. Help us to treasure you, and to trust you, and to flee from adultery of all kinds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.